Hi, I'm Gideon Spanier, UK Editor-in-Chief of Campaign, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. And this week, we have the pleasure of being joined by advertising legend Sir John Hegarty, who, 40 years ago, co-founded an agency called BBH, Bartle Bogle Hegarty. And Sir John, uh, I'm gonna, we can hear you in the background. Welcome. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Gideon. Lovely to be talking to you. And you'll be telling us about a new course you're running called The Business of Creativity Plus. Indeed. We're going to get John's view on uh, some recent ad campaigns that have caught our eye and his. And next to me, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor, Gurdjit Egan. Hi, Gurdjit. Hello, Gideon. So great to have you both here. Um, we're going to start off with a couple of news stories. Now, we know about the cost of living crisis. So interestingly, Publicist Group, which bought BBH, has announced it's going to give a special exceptional bonus to all of its staff who aren't on, uh, don't have variable compensation. So they wouldn't normally have a bonus. Then they are setting aside about 50 million euros for 45,000 staff. I'm sure a few of them will be at BBH. So it equates to about 950 pounds per person, but will obviously it's, uh, well, perhaps not obviously, it's one week salary. That's what it will be. So John, you've stepped back from BBH quite a long time ago. And I just wondered, what, what do you make of this, the, the cost of living? Importantly, this money is going to be paid out in November, so before Christmas, before Thanksgiving. Well, I, well, I have to say, one can only say it's a wonderful initiative. Um, and congratulations to publicists. I would emphasize I have absolutely no involvement uh, in BBH, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sort of encouraging them because I'm involved with them. But uh, I think it's brilliant. I think... Uh, it's a great way of showing you care for your staff. And we're in a world where looking after the community of people who work for you, and I use that word community, is incredibly important. That's how you ensure loyalty. That's how you ensure added commitment to the company. So I think it's a brilliant move on their part. Um, it throws down the gauntlet to other groups. What are they going to do? Good question. Uh, Gurdjieff? Did you have any uh, sort of feedback or on on publicist move? Um, overall, with the cost of living crisis, there are agencies um, ha- are doing things um, in terms of kind of bonus payouts. I haven't heard um, of kind of you know cash in pockets. I was um, over at Havas um, doing an interview last week, and they've said that they. They're doing lunches, free lunches at the end of the month. So in the week where it's payday, um, before payday, sorry. Um, And I think Adam and Eve are doing something uh, similar, but I think they have launched lunch, free lunch. They've always done free breakfast. They've done free lunch now as well. Um, always, I think. Yeah. So, uh, so agencies, are they're aware of it. They're doing things to help help staff. I think I was going to say there, I, th- I think by and large agencies have always been socially minded. I mean, it sounds odd sometimes for people to hear that because you think they're the sort of uh, the, the, the fine point of, of uh, the commercial world um, and capitalism. But in fact, they've always been very socially minded in how they treat staff, how they look after staff, the, the good agencies, that is. And I'm not surprised to see them doing, th- doing things like this, but it would be a good question to say, what, every, what is everybody else doing? 
and how are they helping? Well, when I wrote about this exceptional bonus, I got several agency leaders from very large to, uh, you know, established holding companies to um, independents asking me. Uh, and they were very interested in this because, as you say, John, you can lead by example. Just a quick one. Don't want to go back in time too much, but you have worked through a number of bad recessions. When you were actually leading BBH, did you? With this, do you recall anything you were able to do as sort of special things? I, I think this particular recession, because it, you know, it follows the financial crisis, and then it's COVID, and then we've got the Ukraine. I'm, I think this has been particularly challenging for people, uh, more so than any other I've known. Um, and I, I can't say that we did particular things, but you always looked out and cared for people and made sure they weren't, um, uh, they weren't laid off. I, I do, if I can recount a lovely story about a certain agency way back who when um, in 1973, we had the terrible recession, the oil crisis, three-day week and all of that. And he was purportedly called all his staff together and said, um, we all know there's a recession coming on. And uh, he said to the staff, I want you to know that the board <clears throat> have decided if it gets bad, we'll take a 10% uh, salary cut. If it gets really bad, we'll take another 10% salary cut. And if it gets so bad that it, something drastic has to be done, I'll sell one of my Rolls Royces. Um, so <laughs> that was how they dealt with it. But anyway, that was. Uh, but I, I think agencies have always been pretty good at, at, you know, despite that story, of looking after people and caring for them. I know we certainly did at BBH, but this is unprecedented, is what I would say, unprecedented. Well, we do have a new prime minister, so I don't know what that means. Perhaps there'll be, an, and that's Rishi Sunak, just for the <laughs> listener wondering who I'm referring yeah, to. Which one are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so let's hope uh, just there's, there's some more stability. I mean, I think it's an interesting question about how you navigate turmoil. One thing that can affect agencies of all sizes is when accounts come up for a review and that can be in good times or bad. Now, Gurdjieff, you had a good story that IKEA maybe planning a creative agency review. And this was your scoop. So what can you tell us? So um, Ikea, who has uh, who have been with Mother for about 10, more than 10 years, what we understand are thinking about reviewing their um, advertising requirements. They're working with the AAR. So there's, there's, there's been a bit of, I suppose, confusion or uh, we're not too sure about what's going on behind the scenes um, because we understand the AAR has had sent out a blind brief to agencies. And then we, um, I heard that it was IKEA, I made a few calls and yes, IKEA said to me that um, they are looking uh, to review their agency landscape and the review is being considered um, so I don't know, perhaps there was a review, for, you know, perhaps they went to mother and said, we're going to review and there are some chats, I guess. And so it's been paused. And I understand that if there is to be a review, it will be after Christmas. So mother is the incumbent and has gotten a very good record for IKEA. John, some of this stuff where clients think they might want to review, especially when an agency has been on an account for, say, a decade or more, uh, it, I'm sure it's not always helpful when campaign starts uh, poking around when their decisions haven't been made. What, what's your take on 
how how much clients should review that it's healthy and and then the next question uh, if it, how destabilizing this kind of period might be well i think first of all um it's a client's every right to review their business why shouldn't they i think there are a couple of things i would observe about it i think they should be as transparent as they possibly can be rather than do it in some kind of uh, cloak and dagger way which i think is very disappointing um, you've had a relationship with an agency. You've expected them to do great work for you, which they've obviously mother have done. Um, I think you should respect that. If they are doing this, then I think they should. the first people they should speak to are mother and say, this is the situation. This is what we think we have to do. Um, and uh, we're going to go to the marketplace. It seems they haven't done that, which is incredibly disappointing. That should be uh, something that they should put right. I think there is evidence to say that um, changing agencies actually isn't as good as it should be. Um, obviously, if you're starting an agency, you're desperate to get on uh, agency pitch lists. But in fact, so often uh, agencies are changed for all the wrong reasons. You know, nobody really does an assessment of how much it costs to change an agency. If you look at the amount of corporate time that goes into it, the amount of effort that goes into it from a client's point of view, uh, instead of trying to fix the problems that they might have. I'm always reminded of a story when I was in art school and uh, uh, we were drawing and a teacher was going around and he stopped at one of the easels and he turned to the class and he said, you know, when a drawing is going wrong, what you do is you keep working on that drawing until it's right. And then you turn the page over. And there was this wonderful pause as he said, I suppose I'm talking about life as well, really. Uh, and I think that's the advice to, to clients is if it's going wrong, put it right. And if at that moment, then once you put it right and you think you still need to make a change, then make a change. But it, it's incredibly, nobody actually costs it. If you actually look at the cost of changing agencies, just from a client's point of view, the number of meetings you have to go to, number of people you have to go to see, which you're not focusing on your business, it's just ridiculous. By and large, completely ridiculous. So um, I would say to IKEA, if I was their uh, chairman or if I was advising them, put your house in order before you change somebody else's. And it's interesting, without going too much back into the history books, when BBH was founded, you had quite a firm view about not offering up creative ideas in the pitch process. And it's a perennial question about how much agencies give away for free and give away their labor. We, we did. We had that, definitely had a point of view. And the, the idea was to say, trying to get clients to recognize that creativity is fundamentally important and that just you know, thinking that you can chuck ideas out at a moment's notice is not uh, of value to either the agency or the client. We focus much more on get the strategy right. Uh, we'll look at your strategy. And then from there, once you've got the strategy right, you can then pursue uh, uh, the creative work that you need. So we very much had a different point of view from everybody else. It was always considered something that wouldn't work. It did work. And it set us apart from the agency industry by and large. And I think we did it because um, having some sense of integrity around the pitch process 
uh, you know, just stopping clients wandering and saying, I'd like to see some ads uh, and not really think it through. So it's self-selected, the kind of clients we pitch for. Naturally, we couldn't pitch for any government business because they always wanted to see work. And we said, well, fine, that's the price we pay. You know, that great line of Bill Birnbach's about a principle isn't a principle until it's cost you money. But it was very much, and it worked tremendously for us until the business went global. And then it was very difficult having a relationship with a potential client to say, this is what we do and this is why we do it. We might come back to that point. Very interesting. Now, let's stick with you because you've recently set up an eight-week course for marketing and communications professionals called The Business of Creativity. Uh, So tell us a bit about what the course entails and so on. Well, the course is actually getting businesses, not just the marketing side, that are essentially creative constructs. Um, And that when you look at businesses, by and large, they think creativity is something that you occasionally engage in rather than putting creativity absolutely central in their operation. And I don't just mean marketing and, and communication. I mean, in the way HR works, the way product development works, the way everything about a business has to engage with creativity. And what you find is Companies, by and large, are not doing that. They're looking at creativity as something that they do occasionally. And what the course is trying to do is trying to get them to understand the importance of that. And it comes out of uh, a McKinsey report saying that those companies that engage positively with creativity create better returns for their shareholders. So McKinsey are looking at it and saying, look, creativity is fundamentally important to companies. Why aren't you engaging with it? positively and constantly, not as an add-on. So the course is really for businesses in general. Obviously, it works very well for those in marketing and communication because it explains so much about the creative process. But it starts with, first of all, understand creativity, define creativity. And the reason often people don't engage with something is they don't sort of understand it. Therefore, they keep it at a distance. Um, And this is getting people to understand that one, we're all creative. Businesses are creative constructs. The more they engage with it, the more they understand it, they'll run a better business. Uh, And I was recently listening to uh, a podcast of uh, James Vincent on Fast Company, talking to Brian Chesky, uh, who founded... uh, Airbnb, and him talking about how creativity was fundamental to them driving their business and how it gave them so many solutions and answers. So, you know, hugely successful businesses are doing it, but most businesses aren't. Uh, So the course over eight weeks takes a different issue and talks about creativity and how you engage with it. And I would say, of course, you might go, oh, is this the moment to be doing it? No, actually, If we're in a recession, which it seems that we are from my point of view, this is the moment to really positively engage with creativity because it can show you how you get out of that, how you can be more competitive. Because ultimately, that's what creativity is. It's about challenging the status quo, understanding how to be better, understanding how to to, to, get your resources to work more for you, uh, how to innovate your way out of a problem. So this is the moment, if anything, that we should be engaging more positively with creativity. Tell us a little bit about if someone wants to go on this course, how do they find out about it and so on? It's online. You go online and uh, we charge uh, £1,500 for the the eight courses. Most of it is being bought by large companies. 
um, who are putting their people through it. So it's an online course. Um, and at the end of each course, I interview a significant business person who is engaged with creativity so that they get an understanding from somebody who's done it, how they do it, all very, very interesting. Um, and then there's questions and answers that uh, you, you, we, we uh, put up online that I answer each week. So it's very much kind of not just here it is, it's you engage with it and there's reading that comes out of it, things that we get people to look at and uh, uh, engage with. So it's over eight weeks, uh, it's online, uh, and uh, it's about, you know, if you can't out, outspend your competition, you can outthink them. And when you present, is it, is it all pre-recorded or do you do it live? Pre-recorded, yeah. yeah. We filmed it. Um, I wanted to be as interesting as possible. I mean, creativity is fun. I mean, creativity is, is, makes life more interesting. It, it, just, it, it helps you in all kinds of ways. And so we filmed it in a, in a studio. Um, uh, you know, I want, it to, yeah, I want you to feel as though I could have watched this on BBC iPlayer or Netflix or something like that. It's not just a lecture. In fact, I don't like calling it a lecture. And I don't I even like calling it masterclasses. That sounds a bit posy. It's a kind of story of how creativity can make your business better and actually make life better for you too. It almost sounds like you could be a marketing professor, but perhaps you're not trying to copy Mark Ritson. No, I think what Mark Ritson does is brilliant, but uh, I, I'm, I'm doing something slightly different from Mark, as brilliant as I think he is. Well, I believe he makes quite a lot of money out of his online lectures. So, And he deserves to as well, because he talks incredibly good sense. If only more people would listen to him. Um, Gurdjieff, as creativity and culture editor, obviously you care about creativity and as a driver, just picking up on what, John has said, do you think there's a appreciation, a rising appreciation, or is creativity under attack? What's your take on it all? I wouldn't say it's under attack. Um, there is an appreciation um, for creativity. Um, I, I, and I think um, companies are realizing that. Um, well, I hope so, because <laughs> that's what I write about. <laughs> I, no, I, I definitely think, I think there is something in it. And it is hard to differentiate, for any business to differentiate, right, John? Yeah, I think, I, I would say too, Gurdjieff, you're, you're absolutely right. I think we've been over the past, I would almost argue, 20 years of being enthralled to kind of data, enthralled to, you know, predictive data and big data and call it whatever you like, rather than going, yes, all of that's important, all of that has a place. But in the end, what's going to make a difference is the quality of your idea. Uh, when everybody can access the same data, um, instead of bowing down in front of it and saying, this is the answer, creativity is the answer. And it will always be the answer. And I, I think it's disappointing that more companies haven't realized that uh, and haven't gone, we've got to focus on, yes, getting the data we can get, but what's the idea? What's going to transform our market? And I think the last 20 years has been very, very disappointing for brands and for marketing and for the well-being of the country because of that, because we're not building strong brands in the way that we used to build them. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting debate to have because – uh, when you look at the the, the advertising sector, it, it, and it's broadened beyond paying, paid advertising, it's essentially grown a lot in the last twenty years. 
Yeah, but I think it's forgotten some of the basic principles. I, I constantly say principles remain, practices change. It's forgotten the principle of fame. It's forgotten the principle of broadcast. It's become a promotional device. Um, it's become a, a sales tool. And of course, you know, um, persuasion and promotion are the two things that you've got to do in the world of communication. Um, but we seem to have gone to um, promotion, not persuasion. And you've got to do both. You can't do one without the other. So not sure how much you follow the marketing professors of this world. Um, one called Philippe Thomas criticized Byron Sharp for ignoring brand differentiation in a recent piece and went on to say distinctiveness of assets doesn't work. Now, do you have a view on that? Well, I think it's incredibly stupid, isn't it? Differentiation of assets obviously works. Um, the very point of having one brand versus another brand is it offers something different. Uh, what I would add to that is not just about difference, but what makes you special. And I think that's the other aspect of a brand that you have to look at. We very much always used to talk about the power of difference. Difference is fundamentally important. I don't want everything to be the same. Otherwise, well, why have five brands in one marketplace? Make it easier and just have one. Um, but actually, differentiation on its own isn't sufficient. What you have to have alongside that is what makes it special. Why should I applaud what you're doing versus somebody else? How should I build something that has value to you? Uh, and uh, out of that, build a successful business well uh, i know enough of my bbh history to know what you did for audi and levi's and boddington so i think that the distinctiveness of assets is yeah is fundamental uh, and of course apple built itself on think different didn't it yeah no they didn't they didn't so say think the same they definitely didn't and <laughs> Uh, it's amazing actually uh, steve jobs uh, did have this amazing clarity of just explaining the the link. So it's kind of obvious, really. Think different and you'll produce better stuff. Absolutely. Um, now, we've got to uh, talk about a bit more about BBH just because it's a fabulous agency. Now, I believe you weren't really involved in any way in this, but it's got a new global board, but no longer a, a CEO as such globally. And you touched upon some of the challenges of global clients. So what did you make of the changes with this new global board and being chaired by Publicis Group, which was announced about a year ago? Um, well, as I said, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to sort of comment on the details of what are going on there because I'm not involved. Uh, I'm, I occasionally meet up with um, Karen Martin, who I think is absolutely wonderful, and we're very lucky, or they are very lucky to have her. Um, Alex Grieve, who's gone back as global uh, creative director, I think is a brilliant move. Alex, I've always had a high regard for Alex. So from that point of view, they've got some great people. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think it's fair for me to comment on a global board. I, I, I do think, you know, we, we know that global advertising is a phenomenon and it's something that's grown over the last 30, 40 years. And actually, in many ways, BBH was... Uh, 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 at the core of that, you know, because we were working on Levi's, which was a European campaign. So we were very aware of um, creating advertising that had to cross borders. I think the danger in uh, looking at that is the reason for doing it 
with Levi's is that there was a sort of fundamental belief that there was a global buy-in of what America was selling us. So we could, we could all unite around an idea, all us Europeans, about a view of America. I think it becomes very difficult with some other brands. And I think the, the reason for doing it is often the wrong reason. The reason for creating global campaigns is to save money, not to actually create something that makes, cultural, makes a cultural difference. And I think when you do something just to save money, in many ways it will fail, because you're doing it for the wrong reason. The reason you should build anything you do in a company, you build it because you're creating something better for your audience. Global advertising, by and large, doesn't create something better for its audience. It creates something that they can ignore because it doesn't talk to them. And I've, I've used, for instance, in that, I've used the, 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 the beer market. And uh, I was involved in, uh, I was chairman of Camden Town Brewery, and uh, they launched in 2010, sold to InBev in 2015 for some close to 100 million sterling. Um, and during that time, we were watching the growth of craft beers growing enormously. Um, you can look at all the figures, but yet overall beer sales were declining. And that's because the big global brands were not talking to the people on the ground, not talking to the people who consume their product in a way which related to those people. But craft breweries were, and they were growing exponentially as overall beer sales were declining. So it was a classic example of an industry that had gone global, lost contact, in my view, with its audience, uh, and was no longer, and gave craft breweries the opportunity to fill that gap. And, and they spoke very much to their audience uh, and did it very powerfully and effectively. Gurdjieff, a quick word on that. No idea what your view on the beer brand market is. I used to write about uh, pubs and beers, actually, um, pubs and bars at the Morning Advertiser. I, I, I left about in 2010, but yes, the the craft brewery, the, the independent brewers were, were really, really um, kind of grabbing the market. Um, there just also was a feel. Um, I'm I used to be quite a beer drinker. There was a feel of just we want something a bit different. We want something um, that doesn't just taste mainstream. Um, there were there were um, the bigger companies were missing out on that, and I, I don't know. I don't remember when, but there was a point when they. Um, Fuller's uh, launched the Frontier beer that was their craft beer um, but I do remember being in the pub with friends and they were like oh what's this Frontier and when I said <laughs> it's um, it's, it's Fuller's uh, craft beer thing and they were like oh I don't think I'll have that so <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it's um, the, the bigger companies struggle to uh, uh, keep up with that I think I think in any market there is obviously going to be challenges like that. But I think as soon as you start to lose contact with your audience on a local level, you're in serious danger. Whatever market you're in, whatever market you're in, and I think global advertising was 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 born out of a desire to save money. Uh, and as I say, that's my fundamental. It is the wrong reason to do it unless. That is, you have a global acceptance or a, 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 a pan-European acceptance of that market. So Apple can do it because they are at the cutting edge of technology and we all kind of want to buy into that. So they can probably do it. I think if you're in beer where you're trying to, or whatever local product where you're trying to connect 
to people in a local way, in a national way, then it becomes much, much harder. All right. No conversation with John could finish without a bit more discussion about specific work. So I'm bringing in Gurdjit again on the work we wanted to discuss with you. First, Ocean Spray's Power Your Holidays campaign by Orchard Creative. It's all about the brand's cranberry jelly. Gurdjit, can you explain? So this is um, David Colbush and uh, Jeff Lowe's work. So David Colbush used to be the um, chief creative officer at Droga 5 London. Um, and earlier this year, he packed up and uh, went across the sea um, over to uh, Orchard Creative. Um, I think it might be the second ad that they've brought out since he joined. Um, it's classic uh, David Colbush, Jeff Lowe, who's a director. Um there's a family sitting around a dinner table. I'm assuming it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, they're looking quite bored. They've got, um, and then someone brings in uh, a tray of the, the cranberry jelly and it's wobbling. And then they kind of um, start moving with the jelly, become entranced in it and start mimicking at movements. It's just nice, silly work, I thought. Let's have a listen. <laughs> John? Um, well, I'm always a bit wary of, of observing or commenting on other people's work. I, I always to refuse BBH people doing campaigns um, uh, critic each week. Private view, thought, yeah. You know, it, yeah, yeah it's, it's too easy to do. I, I think, yes, it, there are three things I say a piece of advertising has to do. In fact, all my, my lectures on advertising, I've got it down to a triangle because I believe in three. And I say, this is what you have to do. Put this triangle up on, on the wall. And at the top of the triangle, you say, is it memorable? That's the first thing. Because if you haven't stopped somebody, go home now. All right? That's at the top. Then at the, the, the bottom left-hand one, I go, is it motivating? In other words, you've stopped me, and now you've said something that makes me go, Ooh, wow, that's really interesting. That changes my point of view or reaffirms my point of view about you, increases my loyalty, whatever it might be. And then at the other end, is it truthful? In other words, I'm trying to build with every piece of communication a long-term relationship with people. And brands that, that base their communication on truth have a, a, a greater way, a, a, will have a greater, a longer relationship with their, with their audience. So that's how I approach things. So I look at this campaign and I go, yeah, that's, that's you know, memorable. I can remember it, people shaking around. For me, I, it's not motivating. Why should I? Why should I drink this? Why should I have this? It doesn't tell me anything about it. It just stops me. Um, it might be truthful in the sense that well, it does wobble. But why is that a consumer benefit? Um, that's my concern with it, uh, and I would challenge it on that basis. Um, yep, love the production. Think you've shot it very well. Um, but I think my worry is it doesn't fundamentally um, make me change my point of view about something. It doesn't motivate me. 
I always think, you know, when you're do, creating a piece of advertising, what you're doing is you're giving somebody not only to say to them, this is great, but you're giving them a piece of information so that when somebody else says to them, well, why are you doing that? They can say, because. Now, do I say this is because it wobbles? You know, I, I buy this because it wobbles or, you know, um, power your holidays, which I don't quite understand. I, I don't know. So for me, it is it misses out on one of my points. It isn't motivating. Okay. So if we apply your triangle to some work that you do know about, ICV and Veg Powers Eat Them to Defeat Them, which yep. was made by Adam and Eve DDB, and recently won the President's Prize for Behavioural Change at the IPA Effectiveness Awards. Uh, I'm your board member of Veg Power, I should say. So, Yes, I am. You, do you want to tell us a little bit about the ad and maybe why you hope it fits your triangle? It does indeed. Well, first of all, um, it's one of the hardest tasks uh, that we're presented with is getting kids to eat more veg. I mean, we know that. Uh, some those of us who are parents, those of us who remember being sure we don't, you know, kids don't like it, but we know for their health they must eat more veg. Uh, and we have a health crisis um, in terms of kids and obesity and all those things. So this is a very, very important campaign. But you have to kind of approach it. Our, our primary audience are about eight-year-olds. We're talking to sort of eight-year-olds with you know parents looking on, with younger siblings looking on. How do we get kids to eat more veg? Now, being rational about it is not going to work because you can be as rational as you like and saying it's good for you and kids will just ignore it. So let's take a counterpoint of view. Let's say to them, let's create this funny world where veg are coming to take over the world. And the only way you can stop them doing this is to eat them, to defeat them. So I would argue, and, and it has worked. And it's got kids to look at veg in a kind of interesting, different way. And underneath that, of course, is the whole campaign with schools, getting them to understand more about veg and everything else. So it's not just um, a 60 and 30 second piece of uh, TV advertising. So on my chart, is it memorable? It absolutely is. Is it motivating? Because you've got kids saying the only way I can defeat the vegetables and have and, and it's fun is to eat them so you show that they're eating them. Uh, and is it truthful? Well, it's fun. Uh, and from that point of view, I think it works. Great. And is there one effectiveness measure or metric you can give us? Um, well, I haven't got the details, but you can go into the paper. In fact, sales of veg went up during the campaign, measured by the supermarkets that all joined in, by the way, which was terrific. Let's have a listen. They come from deep on the ground. Water makes them stronger. Sunlight fuels their power. And they will stop at nothing until they've taken over the world. For years, the grown-ups have been keeping the veg invasion at bay. But they can't do it alone. They need your help, kids. You're going down, Peas. It's crunch time. Get suit. I'm helping to defeat them. 
defeat them. Join the fight. Eat them to defeat them. Now, Gurgit, you and I are both parents, but I'm going to ask you, did the apocalyptic attack by vegetables work creatively in your opinion? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think anything... Uh... Um, I mean, my son's quite young, so if I put a vegetable in front of him, he will generally eat it. Um, at that age, at eight, eight years old, as, as John, you say, um, you need to think creatively about how to um, talk to children. It's it's not just uh, vegetables are good for you and you better eat them, <laughs> is it? What I also like, as you say, it's, it's not just a 60 and 30 second piece of work. It's the, the work you do around a campaign um, in really to cut through um, and going into schools to explain and, and also giving them the materials uh, is yeah. what works. And it clearly works. And the IPA effectiveness awards have, have said so. Yeah, it is. It's a very, it's a very sort of counter thought which is, you know, you're having fun with it and kids love having fun. They like, they like ridiculous things and you're doing it in a very distinctive way. I thought it was, when it was presented by Adam and Eve, who I thought were brilliant, by the way, um, I, I just instantly said, this is going to work. It's a counterintuitive idea. And, and the idea of, you know, it's like it plays a little bit on that thing of, you know, don't tell somebody to eat it because it's good for them. Tell somebody to eat it because it's going to try and take them over. And then you've got, you know, a bit of fun involved in that. Um, and uh, veg is good for people. So good for kids. So they should be eating more of it. Well, I will agree with you, but I will add this as a small thing that I know ITV were very keen on this and with a potential restriction on high fat, salt and sugar foods advertising, I think this was a good example of the ad industry showing it can promote healthy eating. And that's perhaps all I should say, because we know the effectiveness of advertising. Yeah, I think, I think you make a very good point there, Gideon. I mean, advertising is a tool. It can be used badly. It can be used well. It can be, you know, it's a tool. And I think the more we show how it can work for the good of the nation, the better off we are. Well, I've decided that John Hegarty's triangle is also going to be the new campaign editorial mantra. Get attention. Is it motivating? Is it truthful? Good. I, I haven't registered, by the way, so you're free to use it. Memorable, motivating, truthful. Uh, it could be a session for your, probably is a session in your yeah, business for creativity. Um, business of creativity, I should say. So, Sir John and Gurgit, thank you very much for joining. Great to be there. Lovely talking to you both. Gurgit, lovely to have met you for the first time. Good stuff. Keep up the talk on creativity. So for more information on the Business of Creativity course, you can go to businessofcreativity.com or follow John on LinkedIn. I'm sure, John, LinkedIn is like your dream tool where you can connect globally with business leaders <laughs> and obviously share excellent creative work. Uh, campaigns content on great journalism is available for subscribers at campaignlive.co.uk slash membership if you're not already a subscriber. And make sure you don't miss out on other campaign podcast episodes so you know where to follow us. Lastly, thank you to our producer, Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio, who never says anything, but is listening patiently in the background. Thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>